everybody, this is episode four of season five, and I have Fraser Ballantyne from Zurich with me and Lisa Balboa from Hanover Re. Hi. Hi, Catherine and Lisa. Hi, everyone. It's great to finally make it onto this podcast after listening to so many episodes myself. Catherine. Hi, Fraser. Hi, everyone. I'm really pleased to be with you all today. It's lovely to have you both on. So we're on day three of our Mental Health and Insurance Awareness Week, and we're now going to be focusing upon mental health when it comes to underwriting and product development. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So both of you, obviously we've got you both here. It's not usual that we'd have a situation where there's like an advisor that can sit down and like really go into the minds of an of a underwriting development person and an actuary. You know, it's we don't tend to just generally get this. So I'm not going to, if it's okay with you two, we're not going to do too many pleasantries. We're just going to get straight into it because I know there's so much in your minds that could really, really be useful here. So one of the things we've had, like when we talk about mental health and insurance, you know, obviously from an advisor, from a consumer point of view, we do have so many times we're kind of like, it can be hard sometimes to to kind of follow the decisions and and I know that there's logic behind them in a sense and also it can be quite hard in, in some ways because the logic can sometimes feel it goes against our emotions and things like that. So I feel, but ultimately as well, insurers are businesses and insurance in itself is a risk-based thing and, and, and that is ultimately what we're doing and what we're looking at. So in terms of mental health, you know, we've seen so many developments over, especially the last 10 years. I know I've never been shy about what I went through when I applied for insurance 10 years ago. Um, when I first started with the life insurance, I had all but two insurers decline me because I was living with generalized anxiety disorder and I'd had a couple of bouts of agoraphobia. And I think probably, I know the agoraphobia is something that isn't something that everybody experiences, obviously, but like the generalized anxiety, I think a lot of people can have anxiety and it can be, that can kind of lead to a worry hearing a story like mine, where it was a case of, well, I was declined by quite a few, but even I can see from what I've then experienced further going on where I wasn't obviously a few years ago when I, we did my insurances, I wasn't declined by everybody. There's a lot of options. And from the people that I help, there are so, so many options now. And it's, it's amazing to see what's happened in the last 10 years. But I think a really good place to start off would be to talk about how, because I don't understand this myself, obviously, and I know what you each do, but I also don't know what each of you do in a sense. I know I fully don't understand what you get up to in your day-to-day lives. But in terms of like mental health data and how it's analyzed, how those decisions are made, you know, what, how is that done? How, how does that outcome kind of happen in insurance? Yeah, thanks, Catherine. I think hopefully I can unpack some of that logic that you were talking about there and really, you know, hopefully share some insights to everyone in this call, mental health um, as you were describing, so much more prevalent these days, so much more widely discussed. So it'd be really great to be able to explain that link of how we go from the data to the underwriting to the customer decision. So let me unpack that a bit. And before I dive into the data, so as an actuary, and I know uh, you know this about me, Catherine, I, yeah. I love the data side, but I thought it's worth just taking a step back and touching a bit on the underwriting process. And Fraser's an expert in that area, so he'll share lots more insights on the underwriting side later. But in a nutshell, life and protection insurers have underwriting philosophies, and these philosophies guide their customer decision-making. And it's the underwriting that sets the boundaries on which customers can be accepted for cover and on what terms. So as you mentioned, Catherine, we've seen quite an evolution of that over even the past 10 years in terms of what we can offer for customers with different health conditions and on what terms. So you know, as a customer applying for life insurance, it's the underwriting that adjusts that end customer price. And what's important is 
that that price it's adjusted um, for factors that are connected to an individual's increased mortality or morbidity risk or just putting that in plain English um, that's those factors that potentially increase a customer's chance of dying or getting ill you know we're not clairvoyant we can't predict any one person's um, chance of getting ill or dying with absolute certainty but it's about focusing on these averages and, and pooling risk together and understanding those factors that you know, looking at at a population level, there's a higher chance of an individual dying or getting ill than someone without that health condition. So in terms of that, when we started saying with, you know, you're saying you can't do it based upon one person, you know, obviously, you know, we can't do that. We have to take it upon the averages. So, so in my mind, I kind of, I am quite visual. So I kind of just see this like massive database somewhere of, I don't know, data from 10, you know, for over decades worth of data that's kind of like, I, I can't even imagine how much all this data is stored somewhere or how it's even analysed, but it's kind of like said, right, all the people that were this age in this time period who had this, the, you know, the likelihood of all this, the fact that, you know, this happened to so many of them that ended up them being, you know, potentially more ill or developing a certain thing like cancer or heart disease. And actually from this group as well, so many of them died. Is, is that kind of like a really really basic way of kind of saying how that kind of data is gathered. Yeah, you've put that really well. So, you know, we need a a large data set there and it might not be sort of one giant data set of everything together. It's about using the health um, and medical research that we have and population-based studies, um, which are often on individual health conditions. Sometimes it's a big population study where there's multiple health conditions that are explored, but that data is there. So the job of actuaries and underwriters is to use that data to then set the underwriting philosophy. So really be led by the data, be led by the medical community in terms of understanding those different risks when it comes to health conditions. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. So um, these factors then, um, so could be the mental health conditions. It could be physical health conditions as well. Um, And, you know, beyond health conditions, it could be lifestyle factors or such as smoking and alcohol could be family history factors um, such as um, family history of cancer. So, the point of underwriting um, is to use all that data that underpins that to then adjust the price to allow for those material health and lifestyle factors that aren't captured in the usual mortality assumptions that we as actuaries use to set the standard price of the insurance product. So this kind of talks to your point, um, Catherine, earlier about you know mental health is so prevalent. So I, I've seen stats where one in four people in the UK um, will experience a mental health condition at some point in their lives. So that's a huge prevalence. So, of course, any mortality risk that that could be attributed to these mild mental health conditions, you know, that will already be in the insurer's standard life insurance price. The typical, um, you know, risks that an individual would have in terms of any additional mortality or morbidity. I mean, it's already priced in. It's already there. It's it's one in four. That's that's, you know, 25 percent of us. That's a, a huge number. So you know, those conditions uh, really wouldn't, um, you wouldn't expect anyone to be charged more for having those conditions. That's really good. And I think I was just going to say sort of like to kind of summarise that for people who are maybe not sort of like too familiar as well and how things work. So in terms of like the insurance products and everything, um, obviously we all, there's a base price, you know, if somebody is a certain age, they're um, they're a non-smoker, they want a certain amount of, you know, anybody, you know, regardless of the gender or anything like that, the, the price is the price in a sense. And obviously, if we're talking about potentially increased prices, it means that there's something there that the insurer is saying, we think this might be a bigger risk for there being a claim on this policy. Um, so we're going to increase the premium a little bit. And I think as well, it's always a different podcast completely, obviously, because this is all about your technical minds, but, you know, talking about those potential, what those 
increases can be, you know, sometimes it can be quite small, actually, the increases. I think people sometimes think that if it's an increase, they're going to suddenly, it's, it's automatically going to be really unaffordable. But anyway, um, sorry, going back to that, you know, I think it's important to just, you know, really catch on to what you just said there. So, so kind of like insurers now understand that, you know, anxiety and, you know, some stress, especially anything to do with that like bereavement or just general life at the moment, you know, it's, a lot of people are stressed. We do live in a very stressful kind of society. Um, insurers understand that and they're taking that on board. And if somebody does have, you know, some mild anxiety, some mild stress to not, in a sense, I was going to say not be worried. And I don't want to seem that as like being flippant to say that you shouldn't be worried applying because obviously to each their own as to how they would feel, you know, you, you're potentially applying for insurance, which is can be very unusual for some people. Um, but the ultimately to, to just be aware that insurers now are saying, you know what, anxiety to a certain level is, is kind of normal. And it's it kind of, we are, it's a healthy reaction to certain situations, as well as, you know, feeling bereaved, as well as feeling stressed. And they're not going to be altering necessarily the pricing because someone has a bit of mild anxiety. And I think that's really important. You know, there are certain points, which I'm sure we'll breach, you know, and so I talk about a little bit to say, there are times that the pricing is going to change, but, you know, change a bit. But I think what you were just saying there is, is really important to hold on to is the fact that insurers are now taking this on board as this is a part and parcel of life for quite a lot of people now and and if they weren't taking that on board then pretty much everybody's price would just be changing anyway because it, it's just it's pretty much almost everybody yeah I think you're you're exactly right conditions like mild anxiety you know they're a healthy response to everyday stresses especially all the disruption we've been through just with the pandemic over the past couple of years so that's not something that an insurer would increase the the base price for normally um so it's really about the more severe, the more persistent mental health conditions. So that's where underwriting ratings are typically um, used to adjust the price in line with that additional risk that the data is showing is, is there. So, I mean, setting that approach, I can appreciate um, it's quite a collaborative effort between actuaries, underwriters like Fraser, and also medical experts. So it's all about, you know, taking that data from the medical and health literature and then assessing from that data what is the elevated mortality and morbidity risk for these different mental health conditions? So, you know, population level studies um, on different mental health conditions, such as anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, and many others. So it's about delving into that data and looking how elevated mortality is for those groups of individuals with that health condition compared to those individuals of the same age and sex without that particular health condition. And that's how that then links into the underwriting philosophy. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if it'd be possible to, you know, you just mentioned in a couple of other ones there, you know, potentially like the bipolar disorder side of things. Because I think, again, you know, when we're talking about mental health, I think people who have maybe got a bit of anxiety, a bit of stress, they probably, you get a mix of people thinking either really affect things or people thinking, well, it won't because it's just a bit of anxiety and stress. Everybody has it. But then when you have something like bipolar disorder, I think a lot of people um, that, well, a lot of people that I've spoken to, so I can't say everybody, but, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken to with that condition, they've said, you know, that they often, they do think obviously it's going to really affect their ability to get insurance and especially the pricing. And I think a lot of the time people, when they apply, they do understand and expect that the pricing is, is maybe not going to be the basic pricing, maybe because of things in terms of the medical history that we often see for people that are living with bipolar disorder but it'd be quite good if you can maybe take something like that and maybe do a little bit of a deep dive into it and just explain maybe that one a little bit further if that's okay 
Yeah, of course. Um, so in terms of the bipolar disorder you were mentioning, so uh, one recent study comes to mind that looks at the mortality risk for well-managed bipolar disorder. So even for well-managed um, conditions. So that would be things like um, an individual is in employment and they've not been in hospital in the past five years. Um, they've not got a history of self-harm um, as well in, in some instances as well. And of course, you know, good compliance with, with medication, regularly engaging with their, with their medical professionals, which, you know, is re really important um, to be able to to have that engagement and to be able to um, credit customers that do engage um, actively in terms of um, seeking treatment and managing their condition. So for that um, well-managed bipolar disorder, um, there's a study based on the UK population that shows that, um, you know, even under those circumstances, uh, the mortality risk um, for individuals is about just less than double than would be typically expected for someone in the general population um, with the same age, same gender um, as that individual. Um, but this individual has well-managed bipolar disorder compared to people in the general population that don't. So just putting that in really simple terms, that, that translates into the chance that someone with that bipolar disorder um, of, of passing away, it's, it's twice as high um, as the general population. So if you think about that, the insurer perspective, the insurer um, needs to allow for this additional risk in the pricing for the customer. So the standard price that an insurer would use for the general population, that, um, that's not including this additional risk that's attributable to the bipolar disorder. So that's where the insurer would come in and use an underwriting adjustment to increase the customer's insurance premium to allow for that additional risk. Okay. I, th I think what's important as well when we start like, sorry, saying this, you know, obviously thank you because, you know, it's, it's, I think it's the fact that the data that, you know, I say I'm, I'm always, I'm not a data person, but I think sometimes, especially in this situation, you know, the data is obviously really important to hear. But I want to say that if anybody is listening and they have a mental health condition like bipolar disorder, you know, please don't, you know, I really hope that this doesn't make you feel unsettled at all. Um, but it's it's just something that the data is showing. That doesn't mean that it would be you as an individual and certainly not you in your circumstances. Um, but it is just something that is generally being shown by the data that's being able to be accessed by the insurers at the moment. I think it'd be really good to maybe have a bit of extra clarity, um, clarity here as well. So in terms of, you know, we are talking there about saying it's you know, there is potentially a high risk of somebody, you know, at the moment we're talking about life insurance, so the higher risk of somebody that's living with bipolar disorder of them dying, it'd be good to know maybe a bit more clarity, and this is outside of my realm, um, but probably where Fraser, you can come in, please. So if I could explain what that is, is it, is it kind of, in my mind, from, from probably, obviously I'm not an expert in bipolar, but from my little knowledge in a sense, um, I think it's maybe probably going to be a long-term effect of the medications or potentially even um, and potentially an increased chance of attempting suicide. And how, how does that, how is that kind of mortality kind of pictured, Fraser? Yeah, I think you're along the right tracks here, Catherine. I mean, the data does tell us that one of the main risks with a condition such as bipolar uh, is suicide, unfortunately. Uh, we do also know that having suicidal thoughts is a depressive symptom of having bipolar disorder. Uh, when we look at studies, <clears throat> we can see that up to 50% of all people living with bipolar disorder do attempt suicide at least once in their lifetime. Uh, we've also seen research showing the risk of suicide is, is up to 15 to 20 times greater for people living with bipolar disorder compared to the general population. 
And I think when you're presented with, with that kind of data from an underwriting risk perspective, it's clear that the underwriting outcomes need to reflect what that's telling us. Uh, there are other factors in there, such as increased cardiovascular risks, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to touch on that a bit later on uh, if that comes up again. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm sure we can definitely make time for that because I'd be really interested in terms of that. Again, I'm assuming possibly some kind of, I don't know, lifestyle and kind of medication risks that would come into there, stuff like that would lead to the cardiovascular. could be completely wrong. I'll stop wittering there and trying to guess. I'll let you take that away, Fraser. Um, but I think that that's, that is really interesting. I know that a lot of people, again, that I speak to that come to us for help, we, we tend to find that, you know, there has been some kind of a, a suicide attempt at some stage. We we tend to find, and obviously I'm not saying I speak to everybody in this in the UK who is living with bipolar. We tend to find that people who've had suicide attempts, it's maybe something in their teenage years before um, they've been medicated, before they've actually been able to establish what's obviously happening, what's going on. But obviously, I suppose, um, you know, there are probably a lot of people who have later stage diagnoses as well of the condition without necessarily um, getting that support beforehand as well. And um, and I imagine, as you say, it all comes down to the management and different things. And and obviously lots of things are out of control, like especially the pandemic. You know, I imagine, I, well, I know personally for a lot of people even who didn't start out with a mental health condition have found these last two years have put them in a, in a not positive place. And so... And I think it's kind of like a mix because as someone with mental health myself, I kind of feel like I've been able to weather it quite well, actually, because obviously not meaning to be, again, flippant at all, but my my natural tendency to be a bit agoraphobic is quite liked um, not being having to be not being able to go out and not going out places. But then that's going to have a knock on effect later on. And the fact that when the world does open up again properly, I need to go back out again. And I'm not saying that I haven't been out. I'm not saying I'm back to being agoraphobic, but there's there's so many connotations as to what's happened to the last few years. And I think we need to, to take that on board. But Lisa, I think when it comes to like actuaries and underwriters, um, sorry, the latest evidence that's available and different things like that, there's all about, it's to do with as well, like the ABI, which is our Association of British Insurers and certain standards that are set with us as well. Yeah, so the ABI um, and the mental health standards that have been published do a great job at emphasising that insurers need to use the latest evidence available um, and make sure that they're always looking out for that latest evidence and reflecting it in the underwriting philosophies so that you know we can be accountable for custom, customer decision making and making sure that we're always doing the best by our customers. So that, that's really important. And you mentioned a lot of the disruption in terms of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic recently and potential impacts of that on mental health. So from a data side, um, what's important to note is that, you know, these effects, they're going to take a long time to be borne out and seen in the data. So the number of people that would be needed in a research study needs to be large enough for that data to be reliable. And it takes time for that data to be collected and also um, takes time for to look at the longer term and to see how that impacts an individual's risks over, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Um, so I think what's also important, though, is even um, sort of without that population data emerging, so that's yet to, to come um, over the next 5, 10, 15 years, there are new treatments that are being developed all the time for mental health. So it's really important to stay close to the medical professionals and adjust that data so that we can allow for these new ways of treating mental health um, in our underwriting philosophies where that we can see that there's potential for them to have a positive impact in terms of improving uh, the outcomes um, for customers that do have a mental health condition. So, um, you know, in some cases, the individuals 
Uh, yeah, so in, in that sort of case, you know, lifestyle interventions, protective factors that we're starting to know can um, provide, um, you know, critical um, tools in terms of an individual and their response to um, mental health conditions and, and managing and, and living with certain mental health conditions. There could be opportunities perhaps to take that into account um, or, and really to be led by the, the medical profession here and make sure we're always um, yeah, doing the, the best uh, we can for the customers in terms of the latest treatment approaches. Brilliant. I mean, I think, sorry, I mean, obviously that's absolutely fantastic, Lisa, to, sorry to hear that we're, there is that constant collaboration. Because I think sometimes, again, there's maybe that thing of saying, well, insurers are over there doing their thing. They don't know what's going on. But to hear that they are speaking with the medical experts, and I know that's probably something that inside the industry, we know that there's medical experts being gained, you know, being accessed all the time. Um, and I think that's not necessarily always translated out into the bigger, into the bigger world. But um, it'd be good to hear how things work from like the actress, obviously, Lisa, you're there, you've been doing all this analysis, you've been working with medical experts, you've been putting all this kind of data together to say, this is what's been happening. And it'd be good to know then how that kind of then translates to the underwriting development team, Fraser, and kind of like you're building your manuals. How does it, how do you go from that data to then go, and this is what we're offering? Yeah, well, hopefully I can articulate this as clearly as Lisa has. Uh, it's a hard act to follow. Uh, I think from our perspective, the reinsurer tends to build the underwriting manuals. And as the insurer, we'll use these to, to assess the applications and the medical information that comes in through the process. My understanding is that they, they start by looking at the outcomes of the medical and health studies, which Lisa has referred to earlier. Uh, and this is across the various mental health conditions, which we'll see. Uh, it is important that the the studies are of sufficient quality, size, diversification to make it reliable and robust enough for, for us to be using it. Uh, and I think it's important that we, we do acknowledge at this stage that these studies are based on the general population outcomes uh, and not just the insured population. I think that's a key point. Uh, we then have to make some adjustments using established data that we do have uh, regarding the insured population versus the general population. Uh, this essentially means that insurers can disregard some of the small increased mortality or morbidity that comes up because this is captured within the base price charged uh, on the policy. Essentially, in real terms, in terms of the customer, this means very mild health concerns shouldn't require an increase to the premium uh, that's been charged for the base price. So that's kind of going back to what we were saying before with Lisa in a sense of sort of like seeing mild anxieties, you know, sort of like your milder health conditions, they, they're kind of just absorbed within the, well, this is kind of like what's happening with the majority of the population. So we can't really charge for it kind of thing. It's, 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 this is just the base price. Yeah, as long as we know what, what's been accounted for within the base price, then we can disregard that when we come to make an underwriting outcomes because all these things are pulled together. And I think that's the important part. Uh, and I think it's probably worth just having a brief point at this stage that just pointing out that protection insurance is about the pooling of risk. Uh, essentially, what this means is that we, we may have some very healthy customers that pay a little bit more than their risk and some not so healthy customers paying a little, a little bit less than their risk. Uh, but overall, the aim is to provide cover at an affordable premium to all the customers that, that want to take protection out. So despite insurers or reinsurers wanting to offer individual outcomes, 
the guidance for mental health when it comes to underwriting needs to be reflecting of the range of people within the study cohorts. I think that's really important to, to remember. Uh, I think it's also important to remember that unlike general insurance policies that tend to be on a one or two year renewal basis, protection plans tend to be long term. Yeah. Uh, you know, our underwriting outcomes, they are decided at the outset with no planned review period, uh, regardless of whether the condition was to improve or deteriorate. And that tends to be not limited to mental health. That's to all conditions that we're assessing as an underwriter. Yeah. Therefore, I think the data we use needs to have identified medium to long term indicators to ensure that our underwriting outcomes are accurate and fair. Uh, this means that the studies we use have to include a large number of people with the condition, otherwise items can be skewed or actually wrong, yeah. uh, which would not be good for anybody. So I think, you know, in terms of that long-term thing, just to clarify again for anybody who's listening, like who's, who's not really familiar with, you know, the insurance side. So if we're talking, if we talk about life insurance or critical uncover income protection, anything like that. So things in the protection market, not in the general insurance market, like you mentioned. So in the protection market, you know, if we're speaking to somebody in their 20s, they could take out an insurance policy that lasts, you know, anywhere up to, you know, obviously it could be their retirement age. So probably the late sixties, um, they could potentially take it out for their whole of their life, which means it just keeps going and never ends. So in a sense, the insurers, I always try to say to people um, this way, I'll say, you know, it's a snapshot. The insurers are taking a snapshot of your life and you, your health and everything else that's factored in on this day. And just like you're taking, you know, you're, you're trusting the insurer based upon their terms and conditions and the key features and everything on that day you start the policy, they're doing the same with you. So they have to kind of, they factor in your health now, but they also have to take in general kind of factors anyway, whether or not that would be a case of you've got absolutely no health conditions, there's predicted you're not going to have anything, you're just going to, in a sense, naturally pass away in your 70s or 80s. You know, it all needs to be factored in in some stage. But, you know, we are talking here about things that, because once the, once the insurer offers this, as, you know, the policy as well, they can't just suddenly take it away. You know, it's there, it's a contract. If you keep paying your premiums, that it's going to be there for the next 40, 50 years or so. So it's, it's kind of it's kind of impossible to kind of quantify and predict, isn't it, in some way? So it, as you say, it has to just be, it's, it's obviously it's very, very complex. But I know you've got some examples, haven't you, um, about how it works? Yeah, I think if we, if we take a kind of simple example, you know, if we used a study of 10 people with stress, the data could suggest that all outcomes are standard, so no adjustment to the terms are needed. But if that study is increased to, say, 100 people, then the next 90 people from those first 10 their outcomes may suggest an equivalent outcome to 150% rating. Yeah. I think this is why I mentioned earlier that the studies have to be of a sufficient size to be used because that gives us a broader range of potential outcomes. Yeah. Now, the studies that we do use will be larger than 100. I mean, they have to be a reasonable size. But it just gives an example as to, you know, you need a, a large data because the initial parts may just show one thing, but as you go further on, they can show different outcomes. And I think that's really important to make sure we're using the right data. Absolutely. And I just want to clarify as well, just for people. So in terms of, I know you said that it would be known as what's known as in the insurance, we'd maybe say plus 150, you know, 150%. So as an example for somebody, and I'm going to try and make sure I do my maths right here because I really don't want to get it wrong, <laughs> especially with you people who are so numbery. Um, so if it starts off the base premium with something like five pound, um, the 150% would mean that we would multiply that premium by, as long as one, 
I know, 2.5. There, I almost got it wrong. Multiply it by 2.5 because the initial £5 is classed as, in a sense, 100. So an extra 150 would then make the premium £12.50. So that's a good example in terms of like the premiums that I was saying before about how it doesn't mean that it's going to become ridiculously expensive if you know that it's going to be pricey. Obviously, no matter what, £5 nicer than £12.50. But ultimately, if the price is going to, to increase, don't always assume it's going to become unaffordable or that it's going to, I know some people can feel sometimes a little bit offended by the premium changes. It's not necessarily going to potentially get to a level where you think, well, that's an offensive level of an increase or some things. It's always worth looking at. But no, thank you, Fraser. That's really good to sorry, know that. Um, but sorry, carry on. I know I've interrupted you. That's all right. I think it's good to get the, the, the example out there. I think in terms of the data, it's, it's also broken down. So, you know, it can be utilised for application questions, and the information that we want to obtain from, from the medical professionals. So the information we obtained can then be easily used by underwriters to determine the right underwriting outcomes. Uh, this then goes further and gets filtered out for the various mental health situations which we, we'll have, such as bereavement, anxiety, stress, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and any of the combination of the above, to be honest. Uh, and I think what happens then is the underwriting manual will create decisions based on the key information and for the mental health conditions. And that includes areas that are really important for underwriting, such as when the, the individual first had symptoms, uh, the type of treatment they may be having, as well as any recent changes to treatment. Uh, we also look at things such as the amount of time off work uh, and as well as any uh, self-harm and or suicidal thoughts or attempts. Uh, so those are some of the key information that underwriters will start to look at. Uh, we also have the added complexity, and we see this regular, that customers can suffer from more than one mental health condition and the symptoms and other treatment can overlap. Uh, that's when underwriting manual outcomes do encourage the underwriter to, to really take a holistic view and not just look to assess each individual condition. Uh, when you overlap, it becomes a lot more complex for the underwriter to, to do, but Often, you know, the guidance will just ask the underwriters to simply assess this customer using the more severe condition. We disregard the milder one and we'll just go down the one that, you know, is, is, is possibly a severe condition. Uh, there is overlaps, but that, that will generally be where we will go. I imagine that that kind of also comes down to a little bit then of, you know, I think with some things, you know, probably with the underwriting, there is a little bit of a black and white type thing where it's just like, right, you've got this, this is the answer kind of thing. But it sounds like here it becomes much more, you know, that's that's absolutely when we really need sort of like the, the personal underwriter, not kind of like, an, you know, we, we do have underwriting engines that will be able to, some of those black and white situations that they can kind of kick in and, and make quick decisions. But, you know, with this complex stuff, it sounds like it really needs somebody, in a sense, like yourself, you know, some of your team to sort of like sit there and go, right, you know, I need to see the person here and, and see what's going on and really understand what is going on with this specific individual. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Catherine. I mean, if you if you take it to a different condition, for example, high blood pressure or diabetes, we know what is considered to be a normal blood pressure reading. We know what is considered to be a normal, you know, HbA1c result for a diabetic. And we can then incrementally go up when they rise to create an outcome. Mental health is slightly different. It's, 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 and I think it's a very more emotive subject to, to discuss the underwriting of mental health. But what we are looking at is that's when we do need a, a human often to, to look at it and just try and take a real holistic view and 
look at the what would be a positive factor and a, and, and a less positive factor. Uh, but an underwriter always has the ability to use all the information they have to determine the outcome, uh, even if that is more detailed and more granular than the guidance within the manual. And that's when the experience and expertise of the underwriter really comes into play. Uh, you've got to balance that medical history and come to a fair decision. But I think ultimately the important factor is that we genuinely need to ensure that whatever the final underwriting outcome is, it's correct, it's fair, and more importantly, it's actually proportionate to the risk. And that's really important. Absolutely. And I think that's so important. And something that obviously, as well, some listeners uh, may or may not have experienced, you know, I'm somebody who's experienced as, again, I've not been shy about this, but a letter that said, you know, obviously that I wasn't able to get the insurance and quite bluntly said that, you know, it was just kind of like it's due to mental health, which it does then have. And there's no point hiding away from that. It's, it's essentially saying we think that at some point, you know, your your mental health is going to spiral to such a level that you're going to want to, to not be here anymore and take action on that. And I think what's good is that there has been so much work and there is, and I don't, I'm not going to say that it's, it's perfect in any way, shape or form at the moment in the industry, but there's been an incredible amount of work being done at the moment about how these decisions, like you say, these, that the correct, fair and proportionate, how these decisions are then, that's conveyed to people and how it's being discussed just so that people are making sure that when we're giving this kind of information out to somebody on the decision, if, if they don't have someone like myself, like an advisor there, who's kind of like a middle person to dis discuss what's gone on. Um, we can then obviously um, sort of like there can be some kind of a decision there that the insurer can sort of say very clearly as to, as to what exactly is happening rather than it just being quite broad statements, which I think can be quite difficult because you know obviously if you do get a letter that just says oh you can't have insurance because of your mental health that's that is very very broad um and sorry for it to maybe be more detailed is is really good because that adds to that kind of transparency and um, the fairness um to, to what people are hearing if i can just go back to you for for a minute lisa so as an actuary i know obviously you have so much data that you're looking at. i can't even begin to fathom how much data you look at and and put together but i suppose in terms of the mental health what kind of data would you love to have in front of you what kind of data do you need to have to be able to to really analyze mental health statistics more yeah I think that's a, a great question Catherine so more granular data more recent data on outcomes for a wide range of mental health conditions you know mental health conditions cover a really broad spectrum and even you know within a specific condition there's such varying levels of severity so data that can really capture that would be very helpful uh, and also, I think Fraser touched on this um, as well, but capturing other risk factors. So the age at which someone was diagnosed or, you know, um, duration of any relapses, if they have had recent relapses, capturing that within the data set as well can be um, really helpful. Um, I think another area as well is finding ways to quantify some of the uh, biopsychosocial factors that Fraser was touching on. So that support network and uh, the proactive engagement that people do undertake in managing their mental health. Um, if, if we can capture that within a data set, then we can start to really have a, a data-driven approach um, towards, um, you know, setting underwriting approaches for this. Underwriters do a fantastic job at getting really close to all of that. So if we can actually collect the data together as well um, in terms of going forward and, and getting more data, um, more recent data across a, a range of severities, that will be really helpful. Fantastic. And I think, you know, obviously, I think that's, that kind of sounds like it's quite standard in a sense, you know, you kind of think, well, you need that, you know, to be able to do this. And I think that's good, you know, make sure that we, sorry, like as an industry that we try and get as much of 
out, sorry, outreach to so many areas we can get all that data from. Um, I think, Fraser, um, what are the kind of things that are happening right now in the underwriting world to try and improve access to insurance for people that are living with mental health conditions? That's an interesting question, Catherine. I mean, I think in the last few years, mental health has become a huge focus, both within our industry, as we all know, and, and in the wider world. There's a lot, it seems to be spoken about a lot more. It's a lot more uh, open and honest, I think, is happening. And I think that's a great thing. I think in terms of our industry, uh, the main piece of work recently for insurers has been working to implement the ABI mental health standards throughout 2021. Uh, this means that realistically, customers should have, for example, two or more choices of how to communicate with an insurer and the insurer should be supporting customers by having processes in place for those that need assistance to complete the application process. Uh, and I think that's really important. And insurers also need to be included in an introduction to their questions, explaining the process and making it clear the importance of answering the questions accurately. One of the other aspects of the ABI mental health standards was ensuring that all questions can be answered without medical knowledge. Uh, essentially, what this means is that the words insurers are using, they must be easily understood by everybody. And that's really key because I don't know how you can answer a question if you can't understand it properly. And I think using clear, concise, and non-technical words when possible really does help that process for the customer. It's more relatable, uh, and I think it just allows customers to, to feel comfortable answering questions, hopefully. Uh, and I also believe that overall, this work will have a positive knock-on effect for mental health underwriting. Uh, with more customers that have mild conditions such as anxiety, stress, depression being accepted on normal terms. Yeah, I think that's that's obviously anything that we can do is obviously incredibly positive. And, you know, I'm sure that it will continue to keep evolving. Um, something I'm going to sneak in here just because it's something that I always wonder about. Man, I've got you here. I'm going to ask you. That's OK. Um, I So when I do an income protection for somebody with a mental health condition, I know that it's going to have well, most of the time it's going to have a mental health exclusion um, on the basis that, again, for anybody listening who's not familiar with income protection, it is one of those policies where I think it's fair to say for most things, if you've had something before, it's not going to cover you or if you're living with something, it's not going to cover you for that claimable event because you already have it. So it'd be a case of the insurer can't insure you for it for you to then half an hour later say, OK, I'm going to claim on it. Um, and that's kind of like saying it in a very, very sorry, quick and basic way, you know, obviously. Um, <laughs> But in terms of like with mental health, so one of the things that and even I struggle to get my head around this sometimes is, you know, if somebody's got anxiety and depression, you know, we can get them potentially income protection with a mental health exclusion. But if somebody has a stronger mental health condition, like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, um, they can't get in, in most areas in, in the personal protection space. I'm being very careful with my wording here. So if anybody's in that situation, please don't think you can't get these things. There's certain circumstances where we can, so please don't assume no. But in the personal protection space, with a lot of insurers, you can't get income protection even with a mental health exclusion. And I know there must be something behind that phrase as to why. Um, are you okay to kind of go into that for me, please? Yeah, I think this is a question that comes up a lot because as you say, we, you know, we do see a lot of customers with uh, kind of anxiety, stress, depressive history, and they can often get cover with an exclusion, as you know. 
uh, I think it comes back to the data again, and I think this is crucial when we have some of these outcomes, is the research data confirms for conditions such as bipolar, schizophrenia, or severe mental illnesses, that there is an increased future risk of other conditions if the customer has a severe mental illness. So one of the areas we, we do see is an increased future cardiovascular risk. Now, we also know that income protection claims arising from mental health or cardiovascular, cardiovascular conditions in their own right are sizable across the industry. At the time of underwriting, the customer who has a severe mental illness condition may not have risk factors for future cardiovascular events. But the data tells us these will present themselves or can present themselves further down the line. So this goes back to when we're talking about longer term contracts and you can't re-underwrite again at some point. So as an example, the NHS long-term plan that came out, I think it was 2019, estimated people with severe mental illness have a 53% higher risk of having cardiovascular disease at some point. Now, what we also see is higher than recommended alcohol consumption within this group of mental health conditions. Now, the alcohol in isolation, Catherine, might be a standard decision outcome. Yeah. But when you combine that with a severe mental illness, it does become a significant concern for the insurer. If we link it back to the earlier comment on increased cardiovascular risk, there is also the potential for higher than normal alcohol consumption to result in things such as high blood pressure and or heart rhythm conditions. Mm. So... If, as an insurer, we simply excluded mental health from that contract, we really wouldn't be offering an outcome that represents a potential long-term risk. Yeah. Certainly, certainly, it doesn't represent what the data would say can happen in the medium to longer term. Yeah, and I imagine this is one of those times where it's, it's really hard for people who are in that situation, living with those conditions, who, in a sense, don't drink alcohol, who are doing you know so many positive lifestyle things and... And it must be very, very frustrating for them because obviously they're, they're going to face this wall of trying to, and I say, we're not talking about all insurance. We're just talking at the moment, we're talking about an exclusion here. And just to be yeah. very clear, we're talking about the income protection side of things. You know, if you're going to get life insurance and critical illness cover, you wouldn't usually get an exclusion for mental health on those. Um, but with the, with the income protection side, this is where you would maybe be finding that it's, it's, it's more tricky um, in terms of getting the cover. Um, and it's, you know, it must be really hard because as you say, you're having to go as a business, you know, you are going by and insurance is all about risk and you are going by what the data states. And, and unfortunately, that is obviously what the data is, is leading towards. But maybe hopefully whilst anybody listening with those conditions might find that it, they might find that frustrating. You know, it might actually make them feel a bit sad. Um, you know, and some of them might even feel a bit angry, obviously, to be lumped in with a general population. I hope that it's it's a clear example as to why these decisions are there at the moment obviously we're not saying that this is going to be something that's going to continue being the way it is forever because obviously things change so often in the insurance world but for the time being that's in a sense the best way that insurers work at the moment is using those general population statistics and data and that's what they are they're working for me that thank you Fraser that was really really clear for me so thank you it's all right and I think you make a valid point though Catherine is that you know the likes of Lisa and under as we do continue to look at data that comes out you know, it doesn't stand still. You know, yeah. we do look at data that comes in and what's happening again. And then these things are reviewed. But 
at the moment in time, this is what the data tells us. So then we have to work with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Lisa, I think a good thing to sort of talk about to round off this session is something that you would both hope to see. So Lisa and then Fraser, maybe just a short summary of something that you would both hope to see as a change uh, going forward. You know, kind of like what would be your, if you had to choose one, it's probably hard to choose one, but if you had to choose one, what would be your wish in terms of mental health and insurance? Yeah, I've got uh, first a hope and then a wish. So in terms of the, the hope, so Fraser mentioned how data needs to be of a sufficient size. So really having enough data for actuaries and underwriters to be confident in the findings. So my hope is for more collaboration across the industry to really pull this mortality and morbidity data together across a wide range of mental health conditions. Um, and that, that sort of data, it's, it's important to help further refine the underwriting. As, as Fraser said, we're always looking to take into account the latest data and use new rich insights. Um, and in particular for the more severe but lower frequency mental health conditions, that's where you know it's really important to, to have that industry collaboration. But of course, competition is very important as well. So having a central body such as the CMI or the ABI that can you know, anonymize that data and, and take the lead on this sort of approach, that would be um, a potential really great route forward. And then in terms of my one wish, so um, this is, yeah, probably more of a, a longer term one. So it is a wish is I'd love to see the industry working towards finding ways um, to account um, for those more protective or positive factors when underwriting individuals and um, sort of account for it from, from the data side, leading that, that accounting for it. So, you know, finding ways to use some of the newer technologies that we're getting more familiar with um, in recent years, such as telehealth services, health apps, um, potentially even wearables to actually be able to um, provide a positive credit for those individuals where they do have um, positive lifestyle behaviors that may mean that they're, you know, we could take a different view in terms of um, their underwriting outcome than the sort of standard population study um, that's been used to, to set the underwriting approach up to this point. So yeah, I hope that that will be able to broaden coverage and also further increase access and affordability of insurance for those with not just pre-existing mental health conditions, but a wide range of pre-existing health conditions. That sounds amazing, Lee. So I think that would be a lovely thing for us all to, to wish and work towards, obviously. And Fraser, what would be your wish? Yeah, so I've got a couple of things. Uh, I think as we move forward, if we stick with the mental health discussion, I, I genuinely would like to see mild to moderate mental health conditions have more decisions being given without the need for insurers to access the medical records. Uh, I think that means some improved questioning for customers uh, and I think possibly you know even starting to look at utilizing some of the lifestyle things which which Lisa has referred to uh, and I think we can start to use some of those as we move forward but it's trying to have enough data to make sure that those are accurate. Uh, and I think when we do need to see medical records for mental health conditions I would like to see the industry do this quicker or find a more efficient way uh, you know, at Zurich, we, we support IGPRs and this does result in quicker return times. You know, as an example, our most recent data suggests that we receive IGPRs back twice as quickly as a traditional GP report. And I do think those type of things can, can help. We know the longer an application process takes, Catherine, you'll be able to tell us more than anybody else, <laughs> yeah. the longer it takes to get to that end stage of offering terms, the least likely the customer is to still continue to accept those terms because it's a longer drawn out process. So the quicker we can make decisions, the more customers we as an industry can cover. Uh, and I think that's really important. Then I think moving away from mental health, uh, 
I think it'd be great to see the industry work together to to encourage customers and advisors to to explore different sums assured when rated terms are offered. I mean, I think, for example, if a customer has a budget of £40 and this gets some, I don't know, say £350,000 of life cover, but once the underwriting process happens and we have an outcome, that means that that level of cover is unaffordable. It'd be really encouraging to see the customer obtain a smaller sum assured, but still within their budget. I think this goes back to the old saying of when I first started in the industry, you know, some cover is better than none. Uh, and I'd love to see us trying to, the industry work a bit closer together to to really have those outcomes for the customer. I think that'd be great to see. Yeah, absolutely. I think that'd be fantastic. I think, you know, as an advisor, in a sense, I kind of think, well, isn't that being done anyway? And it's, you know, in a sense, you know, because to me, that's, that is exactly what I would do is I always say to, well, my approach is I say to people, we're going to go for the all singing or dancing version. Let's see what the price is. And then if not, we'll work to what the budget is in a sense. And um, I would hope that that would be something that at least advisors are doing, but it'd be really good to see that through other routes as well. You know, if somebody is going direct, if somebody is using maybe a non-advised route, you know, it'd be really, really positive to see that as kind of like a, a mentality that we all take on board because as you say it is absolutely better to have something than nothing there's so many that's probably a bit of a podcast on its own as well in terms of how we could discuss that in terms of obviously bringing in life critical and income protection but uh but no well that's thank you so much both of you for going through all of that it's it's really given me a good understanding of kind of like how these decisions are made how they're then translated into what I see as an advisor and also as well just a lot of that base information that kind of goes well but why you know as a, as a customer if I was coming to you guys and saying but why have you done this I feel like this is given a real kind of like I'm, I'm, obviously I'm sure it's far more in depth and there's lots more that we could discuss about each condition but it just feels like I've got a really a much better understanding as to why something has happened based upon the way that the industry is working at the moment. So, so thank you both so much for joining me. Well, it's been Thanks, great. Catherine. Thank you very much. Lovely, lovely having you inside. So thank you for listening, everybody. Tomorrow, I'm going to be back with Vanessa Salos from Legal and General and Monica Garcia from Monica Garcia Consulting, talking about mental health and claims in insurance. Um, if you'd like to have a reminder of the next episode, please do drop a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, that you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too, thanks to the sponsors, Octa members. So thank you so much, guys, and I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>